Welcome to Hour 3 of the Jason Rand Show. Josh Hammer been filling in for Jason today. Jason will be, will be back in tomorrow. Always grateful to Jason for the opportunity to fill up the airwaves of KTTH here in Seattle, Washington. Once again, if you like what you've heard, you can go ahead and follow me on Twitter, Josh underscore Hammer. I have my own show, The Josh Hammer Show. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify. Again, that's The Josh Hammer Show. So as we roll into Hour 3 here, another story that came across the transom earlier today that kind of kind of riled me up a little bit here. The Biden Department of Health and Human Services is recommending to the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, they are formally recommending that marijuana be reclassified under the relevant statute, which is the Controlled Substances Act. It goes back to the Nixon administration in the early 1970s. Basically, Biden HHS is recommending to Biden DEA that marijuana be not a Schedule One narcotic, but a Schedule Three narcotic. So Schedule One is where you have you know, everything that you, that you would expect, uh, cocaine, heroin, methamphetamine, fentanyl, stuff like that. The point is that by making it Schedule Three, yes, it would still be subject to the Controlled Substances Act, but they're reclassified to allow for all sorts of various other tax breaks and various pecuniary benefits that Schedule One narcotics would not have. Put another way, that even though it would still be listed as a narcotic under the statute, local weed shops, local marijuana shops to go buy your drugs or your paraphernalia, whatever, would get various tax breaks. Now, the obvious, the obvious implication of this is that more people will start to use marijuana. Now, we just spoke just a few minutes ago about America's effectively unprecedented drug overdose crisis in America. Now, are people overdosing from marijuana? Well, well, n no, not really, unless it's laced with fentanyl or harder stuff. Is marijuana 100% a gateway drug, as people say? Yes, yes, these statistics overwhelmingly bear this out. No one leaps right into cocaine, meth, fentanyl, for God's sake. You obviously start somewhere. It doesn't matter that it happens to be a heck of a lot less lethal than cocaine or fentanyl, although it also happens to be true that today's marijuana is actually a heck of a lot more potent than was your grandfather's marijuana back in Woodstock in 1969. The, TH the THC content is actually markedly higher. There's been any number of studies on this. Kevin Sabat of the organization that goes by SAM has done great research on this. So I think this is just totally and completely misguided. The rule of law does not just reflect popular opinion. It doesn't matter that roughly two-thirds nationally support marijuana legalization or decriminalization or some combination thereof. What matters is that the rule of law is also a symbolic gesture. It is able to communicate to the citizens what is okay and what is not okay, what should be good and what should be verboten. The obvious implication – of getting more tax benefits for marijuana shops is that more people are going to be high. There'll be more fatalities in the highway. Colorado has learned this experiment very hard since they first legalized in 2014. Highway fatalities have been way up. And I could not think of a worse thing to do at a time when fentanyl overdose deaths are exploding than to make marijuana more readily available. So shame on the Biden HHS for this.
The Interview. Coming up now, a conversation with the great John Yu, the law professor out at Cal Berkeley, former Bush administration DOJ high-ranking official. We're going to unpack the latest in the Georgia indictments and all of that coming up to you right now. Joining us now is the great John Yu. John is a law professor at the University of California, Berkeley. He's a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. I've had the pleasure of knowing John for a number of years now. So, John, thanks so much for joining the program. Oh, great to be with you. Congratulations on your uh, your side gig here. <laughs> Always a pleasure to guest host for Jason Rance on KTTH 770 AM Seattle. No doubt about that. But, John, you are obviously – I mean, you go on Fox News all the time. You are one of the most public-facing commentators. I guess we can say that. You're, you're a man of, of many talents. But in your commentator capacity, you've spent many words talking about – the Trump indictments and all of that. So I, I, I first kind of want to just cut right to the chase here. Georgia being the most recent, the fourth of these four indictments to drop. I've been saying for a while that I think that this is the most potentially perilous of all four for the former president. So I'm first curious if you agree with that. How do you assess the four indictments as far as kind of the relative danger risks? Ah, well, if you were going to look at each of the cases, you would look at what's the chance he's going to get convicted and then take into account how serious it is. You're quite right, Josh. The Georgia case about January 6th is the most dangerous in the sense that Trump's being charged with being the head of a massive criminal conspiracy, a.k.a. his reelection campaign. And if we're, he has to serve at least five years minimum in jail should he be convicted. Uh, however, I don't know if he really ever will be convicted of any of this because it seems to me the DA has really overstepped and essentially tried to criminalize pure First Amendment activity, which is running a you know, re-election campaign. The one that I think has the highest likelihood of resulting in a conviction for President Trump is a classified documents case that involves Mari Lago that's brought by the federal special counsel in Washington, D.C., Jack Smith, because that one actually turns on just obstruction of justice, trying to hide evidence that's relatively easy to prove. I just wish the government had brought the case because I don't think it's all that important. Right. So I, I, I totally hear you. I mean, I mean, as far as the actual alleged factual conduct, and we should emphasize that it is only alleged because we're only hearing one side of the case so far, the prosecutorial side. But the alleged facts in the classified documents case definitely do not paint the former president in a particularly good light. I mean, you're right. It does involve the alleged straight up ignoring of a grand jury subpoena, things like that. I guess the reason that I, I went to Georgia is because I mean, I guess two reasons, really. One is that there in South Florida, not all too far from where I live, you have the possibility of a potentially fair juror pool. And then you kind of assume that on appeal to the 11th Circuit, Federal Court of Appeals, you might get a slightly better bargain if that thing goes on bonk to the, to the full court. But I want to get back to something that you said about the Georgia case, because this pertains not just to the Georgia case, but also to the other Jack Smith indictment, the Washington, D.C. based one, which is this notion that political speech is is really Right at the core of this, and uh, you know, so many of us have written, spoken about just how dangerous this is. I, I'm curious for your basic take on that. I, I mean, uh, just how profoundly dangerous are the implications of what Jack Smith and Fonnie Wilson are doing for these political speech cases, which they are basically calling 2020 election cases? But you know, John, you know, they're just political speech cases, really. Well, one easy way to tell whether it's how, how dangerous it is, and uh, you know, we do this in law school, is take the rule and apply it to people you like. So I always say to liberals, how would you like it if these allegate, you know, this use of the federal law, using a 
a statute like fraud, committing fraud on the U.S. government, which is usually brought against defense contractors or people who overbill Medicaid, and saying a candidate for office committed fraud against the United States government. How would you like it if that were applied to Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign? Her campaign paid to you know, create this false steel dossier that made these outrageously uh, outrageous allegations of President Trump basically being a Russian spy and then tricked the federal intelligence bureaucracy to pursue the candidate of a major presidential, you know, major party for president, and then to keep going into two years of his administration. I, I mean, if, if Donald Trump's guilty of fraud, then isn't Hillary Clinton guilty of fraud? Or even applied to the Al Gore 2000 campaign where he kept saying he'd won the election, even while all the evidence was running against him. That just shows how dangerous it is to take these broad laws, which are used really for you know, real crimes, real criminal organizations, and trying to apply them to people who are you know, pressing aggressive arguments in politics as they're supposed to do to try to win. I think the founders, what they really thought would be uh, you know, the main regulator of politics are the American people. You know, if people don't like the way that Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden have been conducting themselves and they make themselves, they can make themselves known at the ballot box. And that right there is the analogy that I've made over and over again. I mean, you teach constitutional law, obviously, but for the listeners, just as the U.S. Supreme Court has this doctrine called the political question doctrine when they're, when they're deciding constitutional law cases that are too overtly political for a legal tribunal to decide, that's kind of the analogy that I have used, basically saying that that obviously should have been the check for the foreign president's conduct post-2020 election. The obvious check for that is the ballot box, not trying to prosecute the man and send him to jail. John, one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on here, though, is one of our mutual friends, uh, John Eastman, is has been dragged into numerous of these prosecutions. He was a an, an unnamed co-conspirator in the Jack Smith indictment in Washington D.C. If memory serves, and he is very much a, a named co-defendant there in, in Georgia. And it's not just John. I mean, it's Jenna Ellis. It's numerous other of these lawyers who are literally being dragged into court. They have their mug shots taken. For, for nothing other than zealously representing their client, as far as I am concerned there. So, you know, putting on your, your law professor hat at one of the nation's top law schools, talk to us just a little bit about the threats to the very nature of the legal profession from these particular people who are being rounded up here. It's almost like this is out of uh, something like Sir Thomas More or something where uh, people are so eager to get somebody, to get some hated figure that they cut down all our laws and our customs and traditions to get them. And then they're gonna find that when they've cut down the forest of laws, there's nothing to protect everybody anymore. And that's what's going on here. Uh, you know, John Eastman, I disagree with the, his view about whether there was fraud in the election, but I don't think it's outside the range of what a lawyer could advise his client, especially in an environment like, you know, how do you decide what to do with claims of election fraud, where there's no Supreme Court cases, there's barely any precedents, the constitutional text everyone admits is unclear. So this is, again, this is a hypothetical I often throw out to my friends again about what if the shoe's on the other foot? If you're, if you're willing to use criminal law to go after lawyers for pressing aggressive revolutionary theories or try to get them disbarred, what do you think would have happened to Thurgood Marshall and all the great civil rights attorneys in the South during the time before Brown versus Board of Education, when they were arguing against all the settled precedent and the structures of the laws that had been in place for 60 years, 
Uh, of course, I, I'm glad nothing happened to them because they were zealously pursuing, uh, you know, a legal strategy, which in the end was best for the country. But we can't allow people to criminalize these kinds of, right, these kinds of legal advice, these kinds of consideration of what might be revolutionary, what people might think is outside the mainstream, because again, it will hurt all of us. It will hurt us in our ability to get good representation from lawyers. It will hurt us from uh, ways of conceiving to improve and change things. Yeah, the potentially long-term chilling effect of literally trotting in criminal defense attorneys and prosecuting them for representing their clients, I, I mean, I cannot even begin to fathom what that might do to young, up-and-coming conservative law students, lawyers. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's really... It, to me, it's one of the most absolutely frustrating elements of this entire crossing of the Rubicon affair. But, John, you, we always appreciate your insights here. Thank you so much again for joining us. Oh, Josh, my pleasure. Anytime. And say hi to Jason wherever he's lounging around, whatever beach he is in the world. <laughs> you bet. Joining us now is independent investigative journalist and author of the popular Substack, The Dossier, and a must-follow on Twitter or X or whatever we're calling it these days in the Elon Musk world. That is my good buddy, Jordan Schachtel. Jordan, thanks so much for joining the Jason Rand Show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Josh. Of course. So, Jordan, you – I've known you for years, obviously. We've, we've, been, we've been friends for a long time. I knew you back when you were primarily kind of a national security guy. But in recent years, you've really become the COVID guy, at least to many. And I wanted to bring you on here to talk about the the rumor that is just swirling around in right-wing Twitter sphere, right-wing blogosphere, which is that the, the Biden regime is planning to bring back all of it, the masks, the lockdowns, maybe on a slightly smaller scale, but – what what are you hearing? You've got you've got your finger on the pulse of all of this. How how legit or or not legit are these threats to go back to you know God help us twenty 2020 twenty or twenty twenty one when it comes to masks, vaxes, lockdowns, all of that? Yeah, so so I think the big issue is that we really never had um, any type of sophisticated you know congressional inquiry or robust effort to kind of hold these you know Fauciites the people who. Um, wreaked havoc upon society accountable. And while, you know, there are a lot of good scientists that have come out and really challenged the science, um, I think that the human rights atrocities committed in the name of a virus were never really challenged sufficiently. So they always kind of, you know, especially, you know, the, the uh, I guess you call them the NPCs, you know, they can always be kind of activated if necessary um, to induce more hysteria and I think that's what we're potentially seeing now. Of course, I think a lot of people have awakened to the reality that you know, we were taken for a ride by government, you know, whether that's both. And it was really you know, both the Trump administration and the Biden administration that was like totally, I think, in my view, bamboozled by uh, pharmaceutical companies and a lot of these corporate interests. But, um, you know, Biden is basically told what to do at this point, And now he's told to uh, tell people to get their next boosters. I'm sure he'll t start telling people to wear masks again um, until we really challenge the fundamentals of this whole thing, both from like a legal and scientific perspective. Um, it's going to be tough to see, you know, the, 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 the whole of the American people getting out of this thing. I, I mean, just focusing on the politics, I mean, we're coming up. I mean, we're already in the midst of the Republican presidential primary season. At least the first debate has started. We're coming up on the votes and we're gearing up for a general election, presumably involving Joe Biden. I guess we shall see. 
if, if they're serious about this, shouldn't they be worried about the political ramifications, if nothing else? Or do they actually think that this is something that could potentially win over suburban moms to their side, kind of the COVID hysteria Karens, that sort of demographic? And I'm just trying to figure out what the political calculation could be, unless it's not about politics at all, unless it really is kind of just a true reaffirmation of the so-called trust the science stuff. So what I mean, what's your reading kind of the political fallout of this? Yeah, you know, I think that pharma is trying to get their bags filled, so they have a separate interest. But from the political side of things, you know, it's hard to tell as, as a fellow Florida man now what the, uh, you know, I, I hear anecdotal stories about, you know, people in New York City, L.A., Chicago starting to mask up more. Um, and, and I think from a political perspective, I guess the Democrats believe that there's enough people that they feel they can kind of control and get them all riled up and perhaps start going on the offensive on this topic. Um, you know, my sense is that Americans don't want to be told what to do on this topic anymore, which is why they tried to kind of like, you know, pivot to the climate agenda. And that really didn't uh, pan out. So now they're moving back to COVID. So it, it might be they're just kind of trying to find something to get people fired up. Um, they had the Supreme Court leak in the last election season. So I think they're just looking for something um, because I, I would be, you know, if I was the, the Biden administration, I would be concerned with, you know, the candidates not exactly uh, a strong candidate for the presidential elections. So I think they're trying to make up some ground through some other political means. But yeah, I, I do kind of agree with you. I'm not sure how COVID is, is a win for Democrats. I, I hope it's not anymore. Yeah, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And, you know, you and I, the I mean, we're Floridian. So, I mean, we trust our governor and, and the leadership in Tallahassee to protect us from the worst excesses of the covid regime. But for the listeners who are not so lucky, who you know who live in jurisdictions where they do not have an elected class that is so willing to buck the Fauci's and Burks's of the world and whatnot. What, what would your advice be if, if this thing actually does come back in earnest? I mean, is it as simple as do not comply when it comes to mass mandates? Yeah. I mean, I've been telling people for quite some time, you know, first of all, your best option in living in these um, blue states is to get up and go. Um, I know people are stuck with uh, you know, sometimes large families or jobs that they can't just leave. But, um, it, it, you know, I am not bullish on the future of these uh, very dark blue cities. It, so if you're in a position where you find yourself being threatened by COVID hysteria again, um, it's time to make a plan <laughs> to get out of there because like, you know, one, I remember living in DC prior to leaving for Florida in late 2020. And, you know, if you're the only one that thinks the way you do, it's hard, hard to create much of a coalition. So, so my advice has always been to, um, you know, don't, don't find yourself being the, the only person with your, uh, you know, political viewpoints in town. It's just, it, it's not a good position to be in. So, um, you know, you're, you're kind of just so outnumbered at that point. Um, it, you know, there are some cases of like maybe if you live in a suburban neighborhood outside of a uh, blue state, you can try to, you know, work the, the local government and, and try to go from there. But, you know, the, these governors during the COVID, the full-blown hysteria times, they got so power drunk that most of them just used their executive power to, you know, it's basically the opposite of DeSantis. They were overruling municipalities and cities and enforcing all these crazy mandates. You know, DeSantis removed all the mandates and uh, in, in the schools and everything. So, yeah, you know, my advice, again, uh, is the same that it was in 2020, 2021, 2022. It's, it's you got to get out of there. <laughs> 
So uh, let's get you out of here with this question, which is, you know, we are now three and a half years after the commencement of the 15 days to slow the spread and the lockdowns and all of that. And I think many of us are still waiting to even see a modicum of actual accountability for those who got this so wrong, for those who deprive children of their actual years of learning in the classroom, the social development skills, all of it. I mean, the small businesses that were shut down, realistically speaking, you know, being realistic, three and a half years in now, what kind of accountability can we still expect? Or has that ship just totally sailed at this point? So, so the problem with getting accountability from the folks in D.C., um, I mean, the, the only way to get accountability is really to remove them from office, because um, I'm sure you recall, like we had basically when when Congress was passing the CARES Act, that multi-trillion dollar slush fund for major corporations and pharma, um, it was really only Representative Thomas Massey who was fighting against it. So, the, you know, they're kind of um, the, the issue is that Congress is all complicit. Um, they all bought into it for the most part. And they're not going to hold themselves accountable. They're not going to hold hearings for themselves. It's like trying to get them. It's as tough a battle as trying to get them to impose term limits and vote for term limits, you know, as like a constitutional amendment upon themselves. So it's kind of I hope to find accountability. Perhaps I mean, you're you're more of an expert at this than I am through the legal system. I think that there is some diabolical actors like through the likes of Anthony Fauci and whatnot, who should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. But in terms of Congress um, seeking accountability on the federal level, you know, I, I don't I'm not so optimistic about that. I like what DeSantis is doing in Florida. Um, he, they have a grand jury set up, I believe. Um, That's right. Yep. In uh, in one of the major municipalities in uh, northern Florida, I think. And they're really um, you know, turning the screws on big pharma and the promises that they made about these mRNA shots. So that should be interesting. Well, once again, we've got Jordan Schachtel on the line with us. He's the author of the popular Substack, The Dossier. You can go ahead and follow him on Twitter, at Jordan Schachtel. Jordan, a pleasure as always, my friend. Thanks so much for joining the Jason Rand Show today. Yeah, thanks, Josh. The Jason Rant Show. Here to react, Seattle Talk Radio host Jason Rant. And the rise of soft on crime laws and policies have made it worse. Our man in the Pacific Northwest, Jason Rance, is on that. And you keep on bringing her these extraordinary stories from Seattle. It's amazing. Long form. Joining us now is my buddy, Mike Davis. Mike is the founder and president of the Article 3 Project, as well as the Internet Accountability Project. That's how I am professionally tied up with Mr. Davis. He's also the former chief counsel for nominations on the Senate Judiciary Committee for Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa, as well as a former Supreme Court clerk to Justice Neil Gorsuch. So, Mike, thanks so much for joining the Jason Ranch Show. Thank you for having me on, Josh. Anytime. So let's start off. The reason I played up there your con law credentials. Let's let's start off. You you are a very vocal public facing Trump defender on all things legal. We we also have John Yu on the program today to talk a little bit a little bit about that. But one of the constitutional arguments that's now getting a lot of play is this long law review article that came out, or at least was teased just a couple of weeks ago by professors Will Bode at my alma mater, University of Chicago Law School, and then Michael Stokes Paulson, basically arguing that Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment actually disqualifies Donald Trump from being president of the United States because January 6th was a quote-unquote insurrection under the meaning of the term. Now, Mike, you're a conservative guy. You clerk for Justice Gorsuch on the Supreme Court. What's your take on this particular argument? 
It is a laughable legal theory, and it is a very dangerous legal theory. If these Democrat operatives think they can just take a presidential candidate off of a ballot in a key swing state, and and then their their preferred presidential candidate wins by default, there's nothing more anti-democracy than that for these these so-called democracy advocates. As you know, Josh, uh, after the Civil War, Congress passed the 13th, 14th, and 15th, 15th Amendments, the Civil War Amendments to outlaw slavery and provide due process and equal rights to the freed slaves. And one of the problems after the Civil War was there uh, the, the Confederate soldiers, Confederate insurrectionists, com, com, Confederate, Confederate rebels were getting elected to office, particularly in the House of Representatives. And the fear was is they were going to undermine the Reconstruction, the Civil War gains, and undermine the Union. And so as part of the 14th Amendment, which provides equal protection and due process to the freed slaves, they have Section 3. And Section 3 disqualifies from holding federal office those insurrectionists or those Confederate uh, people who led the who were part of the rebellion and here's the deal this is not self-executing meaning even if this is applicable today to january 6th which is just ludicrous but let's just pretend that it is this is not self-executing meaning there is section 5 of the 14th amendment which empowers congress to pass statutes to implement the 14th amendments and that's what congress has done they have actually passed a criminal statute on insurrection and rebellion it's a federal criminal statute and it has a disqualification component to it to implement section 3 of the 14th amendment the disqualification clause so if, if you want to disqualify president trump they would have to charge him with insurrection or rebellion under the federal criminal code they'd have to present evidence to a judge and jury the the jury would have to find him guilty the judge would have to convict him and this conviction would have to be upheld on appeal nothing is even close to happening uh not nothing like that is even close to happening they haven't even charged president trump with insurrection or rebellion so how the hell can you disqualify him for insurrection or rebellion under the under the 14th amendment so most people who i've spoken with on this think that uh, I mean, everyone agrees that it's not self-executing, but most people say that the secretaries of state in the different states can just make up their own minds, essentially. So the California secretary of state, who's probably a leftist nut job working under Gavin Newsom as governor, could subjectively interpret Section 3 as such. But you don't think that's right. You think that it would involve something something much more than that to keep them off the ballot. So the qualifications for president are in the Constitution, and the disqualification for president is in the Constitution. And if you think that you can have some random secretary of state, some political partisan secretary of state in a swing state, just decide that President Trump was an insurrectionist or uh, was a rebel, and therefore he's not going to be on the ballot in that state, that is not going to fly under our constitutional system. There's a there's a case from uh, from a, a nearly 150 years ago. It's the only case on point that specifically held that in order to implement Section 3, the disqualification, you have to do it through Congress's power through Section 5, which Congress has subsequently done. And this is uh, actually Stanford law professor uh, Michael McConnell, who is a former Tenth Circuit judge. I, I know Judge McConnell from my clerkship days with Gorsuch back on the Tenth Circuit. And 
Uh, he wrote an article. He's definitely uh, McConnell. Professor McConnell is definitely no Trump fan whatsoever. That's right. Uh, but he but he put out this article saying this is a bogus legal theory and it's a dangerous legal theory because what do you think would happen in this country if President Trump, after being impeached twice and indicted four times, and uh, and civil lawsuits brought against him, like Tish James's civil fraud lawsuit in New York for the non-fraud of a, of a businessman paying back sophisticated Wall Street banks in full with interest, what do you think the American? How do you think the American people would react if he won the presidency, but? You had some secretary of state say, sorry, he's disqualified under the 14th Amendment, the Civil War Amendment. Uh, so we're just going to, you know, we're going to take him off the ballot and he's and he's not going to be the president. I, I would I would think that that is even worse than what they're claiming President Trump did on January 6th by objecting to electors, which is allowed by the Electoral Count Act of 1887. That's right. No, I mean, no doubt about that when it comes to the electors. So, Mike, just quickly switching gears here, but staying on the topic of constitutional law, there's been a lot of chatter in the House Republican caucus about whether or not Kevin McCarthy is going to try to line up articles of impeachment against President Joe Biden now that now the Congress is coming out of its August recess. There's been a little bit of kind of a confusion over what the process will look like. McCarthy's talking about maybe just skipping committee, going straight to the floor. I mean, the point here is, and the, what I want your thoughts on is, is this the right path forward? I mean, the Constitution, of course, speaks of the impeachment criteria as, as, as being high crimes and misdemeanors. Is the, is the relatively, or is these, um, is the relative, sorry, three, two, one, is the relevant constitutional language here. Is, is this the right path forward for House Republicans to pursue impeachment articles at this time based on what we currently know about Hunter and Ukraine and all that foreign corruption? There is no doubt that the House Republicans must open an impeachment inquiry on President Biden. There is overwhelming evidence that our president of the United States is compromised by tens of millions of dollars in foreign bribes and other corruption from Ukraine, from China, from Romania. Uh, you know, it seems like every hellhole around the world where America is in trouble, whether it's Ukraine with Russia, Taiwan with China, the Bidens were on the family. The Biden family were were on the take. They were taking foreign bribes and other corruption. It seems like every Biden family member, except for the five year old granddaughter, who they just finally acknowledged <laughs> under political heat after five years, was on this payroll. And House Oversight Chairman James Comer has done fantastic work ch chasing down these SARS reports, chasing down these bank statements, uh, chasing down whistleblowers, showing. There is evidence that then-Vice President Joe Biden and his son Hunter shook down a $10 million foreign bribe from Burisma, the Ukrainian energy oligarch, and in exchange for this $10 million bribe paid to the Bidens, then-Vice President Joe Biden, who President Obama put in charge of Ukraine, threatened to cut off a billion dollars in U.S. aid to Ukraine if the Ukrainian president didn't fire the Ukrainian prosecutor investigating Burisma and the Bidens. And Biden's so stupid, he actually bragged about getting this prosecutor fired. He failed to mention that uh, that his family took $10 million in bribes for this. But here's the bigger problem with this, is there are 17 audio recordings, 15 with, with Hunter and two with then-Vice President Joe Biden, shaking down this Burisma executive for this bribe. This Burisma executive 
taped him. So they have this blackmail on Joe Biden. And guess who this Burisma executive is? He's almost certainly a Russian asset. So you have Vladimir Putin, who has, who almost certainly has these 17 audio recordings, where then Vice President Joe Biden and his scumbag son Hunter are shaking down a foreign bribe and changing U.S. policy. That is the very definition of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors under Article 2, Section 4 of the U.S. Constitution for impeachment of the president or the vice president or other officers. I mean, if you do not move forward with a president who is compromised by a $10 million foreign bribe as vice president, in addition to all the money they took from China and and Romania, the, the impeachment is meaningless. And look, these bribes, this corruption has devastating consequences for the United States. There, look, we had we Obama put Biden in charge of Ukraine. Putin smelled Biden's corruption and weakness and incompetence and took Crimea. We had four years of, of peace with Russia where they were not aggressive with, with Ukraine. The second Biden's back in the White House, Putin smells Biden's weakness and corruption again. He's and Putin's trying to take the rest of Ukraine because of Biden's weakness. The same thing could happen with China, with China and Taiwan. They, we, China was not aggressive under Trump. China is going to be aggressive under Biden because they know that he's compromised. They know that he's corrupt. They know that he's weak. You know, if you, if you go back to the Federalist Papers and kind of founding era political thought, they, there arguably was no thing that the founders feared more than the notion that the commander-in-chief could be compromised by foreign interests. That is the literal reason why, to this day, the Constitution specifies that you have to be a, quote, natural-born citizen in order to be president of the United States. That is the exact fear that they were guarding against. So that was very well said, my friend. I strongly agree with all of those sentiments. Mike Davis, thank you so much for joining the Jason Rand Show. Really a pleasure. Thank you, Josh. Joining us now is independent investigative journalist and author of the popular Substack, The Dossier, and a must-follow on Twitter or X or whatever we're calling it these days in the Elon Musk world. That is my good buddy, Jordan Schachtel. Jordan, thanks much for joining The Jason Rand Show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Josh. Of course. So, Jordan, you – I've, no, I've known you for years, obviously. We've, we've, been, we've been friends for a long time. I knew you back when you were primarily kind of a national security guy. But in recent years, you've really become the COVID guy, at least to many. And I wanted to bring you on here to talk about the, the rumor that is just swirling around in right-wing Twitter sphere, right-wing blogosphere, which is that the, the Biden regime is planning to bring back – all of it, the masks, the lockdowns, maybe on a slightly smaller scale. But what what are you hearing? You've got you've got your finger on the pulse of all of this. How how legit or or not legit are these threats to go back to you know God help us twenty 2020 twenty or twenty twenty one when it comes to masks, vaxes, lockdowns, all of that? Yeah, so so I think the big issue is that we really never had. Um, any type of sophisticated, you know, congressional inquiry or robust effort to kind of hold these, you know, Fauciites, the people who um, wreaked havoc upon society accountable. And while, you know, there are a lot of good scientists that have come out and really challenged the science, um, I think that the human rights atrocities committed in the name of a virus were never really challenged sufficiently so they always kind of 
you know, especially, you know, the, the uh, I guess you call them the NPCs, you know, they can always be kind of activated if necessary um, to induce more hysteria. And I think that's what we're potentially seeing now. Of course, I think a lot of people have awakened to the reality that, you know, we were taken for a ride by government, you know, whether that's both and it was really, you know, both the Trump administration and the Biden administration that was like totally, I think, in my view, bamboozled by uh, pharmaceutical companies and a lot of these corporate interests. But, um, you know, Biden is basically told what to do at this point, And now he's told to uh, tell people to get their next boosters. I'm sure he'll start telling people to wear masks again um, until we really challenge the fundamentals of this whole thing, both from like a legal and scientific perspective. Um, it's going to be tough to see, you know, the, 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 the whole of the American people getting out of this thing. I, I mean, just focusing on the politics, I mean, we're coming up. I mean, we're already in the midst of the Republican presidential primary season. At least the first debate has started. We're coming up on the votes and we're gearing up for a general election, presumably involving Joe Biden. I guess we shall see I, if, if they're serious about this. Shouldn't they be worried about the political ramifications, if nothing else? Or do they actually think that this is something that could potentially win over suburban moms to their side, kind of the COVID hysteria Karens, that sort of demographic? I mean, I'm just trying to figure out what the political calculation could be, unless it's not about politics at all, unless it really is kind of just a true reaffirmation of the so-called trust the science stuff. So what I mean, what you're reading kind of the political fallout of this? Yeah, you know, I think that pharma's trying to get their bags filled, so they have a separate interest. But from the political side of things, you know, it's hard to tell as, as a fellow Florida man now what the, uh, you know, I, I hear anecdotal stories about, you know, people in New York City, L.A., Chicago starting to mask up more. Um, and, and I think from a political perspective, I guess the Democrats believe that there's enough people that they feel they can kind of control and get them all riled up and perhaps start going on the offensive on this topic. Um, you know, my sense is that Americans don't want to be told what to do on this topic anymore, which is why they tried to kind of like, you know, pivot to the climate agenda and that really didn't uh, pan out. So now they're moving back to COVID. So it, it might be they're just kind of trying to find something to get people fired up. Um, they had the Supreme Court leak in the last election season. So I think they're just looking for something um, because I, I, I would be, you know, if I was the, the Biden administration, I would be concerned with, you know, the candidates not exactly uh, a strong candidate for the presidential election. So I think they're trying to make up some ground through some other political means. But yeah, I, I do kind of agree with you. I'm not sure how COVID is, is a win for Democrats. I, I hope it's not anymore. Yeah, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And, you know, you and I, the I mean, we're Floridians. So, I mean, we trust our governor and, and the leadership in Tallahassee to protect us from the worst excesses of the covid regime. But for the listeners who are not so lucky, who, you know, who live in jurisdictions where they do not have an elected class that is so willing to buck the Fauci's and Burks's of the world and whatnot, what, what would your advice be if, if this thing actually does come back in earnest? I mean, is it as simple as do not comply when it comes to mask mandates? Yeah. I mean, I've been telling people for quite some time, you know, first of all, your best option in living in these um, blue states is to get up and go. Um, I know people are stuck with uh, you know, sometimes large families or jobs that they can't just leave, but 
Um, it, it, you know, I am not bullish on the future of these um, very dark blue cities. There, it, so if you're in a position where you find yourself being threatened by COVID hysteria again, um, it's time to make a plan <laughs> to get out of there because like, you know, one, I remember living in D.C. prior to leaving for Florida in late 2020. And, you know, if you're the only one that thinks the way you do, it's hard, hard to create much of a coalition. So so my advice has always been to um, you know, don't don't find yourself being the, the only person with your uh, you know political viewpoints in town. It's just it, it's not a good position to be in. So, um, you know, you're you're kind of just so outnumbered at that point. Um, it, you know, there are some cases of like maybe if you live in a suburban neighborhood outside of a blue state, you can try to, you know, work the the local government and, and try to go from there. But, you know, the, these governors during the COVID, the full-blown hysteria times, they got so power drunk that most of them just used their executive power to, you know, basically the opposite of DeSantis. They were overruling municipalities and cities and enforcing all these crazy mandates, you know, DeSantis removed all the mandates and uh, in in the schools and everything. So, yeah, you know, my advice again uh, is the same that it was in 2020, 2021, 2022. It's it's you got to get out of there. <laughs> so, uh, let's get you out of here with this question, which is, you know, we are now three and a half years after the commencement of the 15 days to slow the spread and the lockdowns and all of that, and I think. Many of us are still waiting to even see a modicum of actual accountability for those who got this so wrong, for those who deprive children of their actual years of learning in the classroom, the social development skills, all of it. I mean, the small businesses that were shut down, realistically speaking, you know, being realistic, three and a half years in now, what kind of accountability can we still expect or has that ship just totally sailed at this point? So, so the problem with getting accountability from the folks in D.C., um, I mean, the, the only way to get accountability is really to remove them from office, because um, I'm sure you recall, like we had basically when when Congress was passing the CARES Act, that multi-trillion dollar slush fund for major corporations and pharma, um, it was really only Representative Thomas Massey who was fighting against it. So. The, you know, they're kind of um, the, the issue is that Congress is all complicit. Um, they all bought into it for the most part, and they're not going to hold themselves accountable. They're not going to hold hearings for themselves. It's like trying to get them. It, it's as tough a battle as trying to get them to impose term limits and vote for term limits, you know, as like a constitutional amendment upon themselves. So it, it's kind of I, I hope to find accountability Perhaps, I mean, you're you're more of an expert at this than I am through the legal system. I think that there's some diabolical actors like through the likes of Anthony Fauci and whatnot who should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. But in terms of Congress um, seeking accountability on the federal level, you know, I, I don't I'm not so optimistic about that. I like what DeSantis is doing in Florida. Um he, they have a grand jury set up, I believe. Um, That's right. Yep. In uh, in one of the major municipalities in uh, northern Florida, I think, and they're really um, you know turning the screws on big pharma and the promises that they made about these mRNA shots. So that should be interesting. Well, once again, we've got Jordan Schachtel on the line with us. He's the author of the popular Substack, the dossier. You can go ahead and follow him on Twitter at Jordan Schachtel. 
Jordan, a pleasure as always, my friend. Thanks so much for joining the Jason Ranch Show today. Yeah, thanks, Josh.